Why does it matter if you have the diagnosis at the beginning or the end? It's the stuff in the middle that really matters and guides your clinical thought process. And in the end, your treatment, not, not a diagnosis. These diagnoses we're throwing on here are, are no different than the tests we're talking about. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. The first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust, and we fulfill that mission through the Clinical Athlete Directory. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider or certified Clinical Athlete Barbell Coach at clinicalathlete.com. Our second mission is to create a community and foster the education of those professionals and future professionals in the realm of athlete health and performance. This podcast is one way that we fulfill that mission, and another way is the Clinical Athlete Forum. The forum is our education, mentorship, and networking community where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To learn more about Clinical Athlete and everything that I just mentioned, head on over to the website, clinicalathlete.com. If you enjoy this podcast, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get this information out to as many people as possible. So like right now, pause, click that five star Unpause. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, I am joined by my usual co-hosts, Jared Maynard and John Flagg. Jared is a physiotherapist and powerlifting coach in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, a clinical athlete provider and the clinical athlete continuing education director. John is a certified athletic trainer and powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach in Maryland, a clinical athlete provider and the lead instructor of the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. And we are very excited to welcome our special guest onto this show, Paul Salam. Paul is an assistant professor at the University of Indianapolis, which is my alma mater for physical therapy school. His areas of research are in sports medicine and the shoulder, more specifically overhead athletes and currently frozen shoulder. On this show, we discuss Paul's viewpoint paper that he wrote with Jeremy Lewis in JOSPT published earlier this year titled, It is Time to Put Special Tests for Rotator Cuff Related Shoulder Pain Out to Pasture. I think the title speaks for itself. This was a phenomenal conversation on all things shoulder exam and just generally pushing the field to be better. We hope you enjoy. Dr. Paul Salam, thanks so much for being on the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invite and uh, looking forward to, to the discussion. Well, we're really excited to have you because you were the lead author on a, on a viewpoint paper that came out earlier this year. And the title of that paper with uh, co-author Jeremy Lewis, the title of that paper is, It is Time to Put Special Tests for Rotator Cuff Related Shoulder Pain Out to Pasture. And that was quite the headline. And it's also quite the paper. And we have within our clinical athlete forum community, this paper has been referenced several times and has been kind of the, the, 
the keystone of a lot of great discussion within our community. So it was a no-brainer for us to uh, have you on the show. But before we dig into the paper, can you tell our six listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, what's led to your current interests and, and current career tracks and ultimately to the pinnacle of your career, clearly sitting here being on the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I would have if you didn't. Um, it's all downhill from here. That's right. But, uh, it, you know, so I, like every other physio, kind of started out in, in clinical practice, um, graduated from PT school with sort of a an understanding that there was something I wanted to do outside of clinical practice. Maybe just wasn't sure what that was. And so within two years and some coaxing, I decided to work on my PhD. Um, was fortunate enough to, to work under Dr. Maury Kolber, um, who has done a lot of research in the area of shoulder and learned a great deal from him in a lot of different aspects. Um, then just as I was finishing up my PhD, um, decided to go back to Duke where I did my training for a faculty development residency, uh, which was two years and then, uh, headed to where I am now after that at the university of Indianapolis, where I'm an assistant professor, um, if I'm honest, my big love is is research and research around the shoulder. Um, I like sort of looking at how things have been done and maybe questioning them um, from a sort of positively disruptive viewpoint, if you will, um, and, and kind of get people thinking, including myself. So um, right now, I'm working on a lot of things around the shoulder, um, particularly frozen shoulder. Most recently um, is my next sort of big area that I'm focusing on. I um, also do a fair bit in uh, in the sports medicine realm related to the shoulder as well. Did you work with uh, Mike Raymond over in Duke at all? Yep, I sure did. We had Mike on the on the podcast last year. I think it's time to get him on again, but that would be quite, quite the cast over there. I'd be happy to give you some some dirt on him. No, oh, I'm just kidding. Um, he'd, fantastic! He'd, he'd kill me. Yeah, Jack Cook on the other hand, I'm happy to I'm happy to give uh, uh, plenty of dirt on him. That's that's amazing. Um, well, your background segues nicely into the paper. So, you and your co-author Jeremy Lewis. Again, the, the title of the paper kind of sets the tone. It is time to put special tests for rotator cuff related shoulder pain out the pasture. And there's some, you know, there's some key points in there, but you started the paper asking three specific questions. And I think that those three questions would be also good for us to jump off of uh, with this conversation and then to kind of touch on some of the points therein. And those three questions, and these are questions for the listeners to kind of ask themselves as well. When using clinical tests for rotator cuff related shoulder pain, are clinicians capable of identifying the structures causing the symptoms? Question two, do imaging findings such as thickened bursa, chromial spurs, rotator cuff tendon degenerations, tears, all these degenerative quote unquote pathologies that we find on imaging, do those things explain symptoms? And then finally, number three, when surgeons perform procedures on said quote unquote pathologies, can they be certain that they're operating on the tissues causing the symptoms? And I think those three questions are great food for thought. So I'll, I'll throw it back to you. What was the original impetus in writing this paper specifically? Yeah. So, um, you know, I had kind of in my own clinical practice and in teaching, um, 
and even in my training, become very well aware of the sort of the, the pitfalls and the fundamental flaws that underline many of these special tests for the for the shoulder. Um, if you look at you know any of the studies or any of the, the the books that sort of put together like Eric and Chad's um, textbook on on special tests for orthopedic um, examination, and all you have to do is flip to the to the shoulder chapter and look at you know the plethora of tests um, listed out for different shoulder pathologies and the, and the fundamental flaws that we see in those, not just the metrics, but in how they were set up and their gold standards, which we kind of get into in the paper. And so I, I thought it was time and, and Jeremy along with me as well um, to sort of just say enough is enough, if you will. You know, initially we had um, the, the title was, is it time to put special tests for rotator cuff related shoulder pain out to pasture? And Claire Arder, who's the editor-in-chief of JOSPT, said, you know, it sounds more like a statement. I think it's it's time for us to be more definitive in, in a statement than it is a question. Um, and so that, you know, it was nice to have some validation from people a heck of a lot smarter than me, like uh, Jeremy Lewis and Claire Arder and some, some other folks to, to sort of be on that that same page. And knowing that there's plenty of people, too, who who use this sort of these these clinical special tests to inform their treatment decision making and so understanding that that there's also going to be potential um you know i don't want to say discourse but you know people who may not quite get along with this idea or might be hard to swallow if you will it's funny that you mentioned the order of the two words it is versus is it because i i was actually going to ask you about that if that was of an emphasis and it's it's interesting that it was yeah Let's drill down to the to the nitty gritty here and talk about the validity of these tests, which you guys start the paper doing. And you also mentioned that when we go back to look at some of these studies that were first creating the uh, metrics on these tests, just th those studies can be questioned in terms of in terms of quality, but also the reference with which we are comparing these special tests to in order to determine things like sensitivity, specificity, ultimately likelihood ratios, et cetera. Talk to us a little bit about some of the issues that we see when valid, when trying to validate these special tests and, and what validity really means in this context. Yeah, I think that's a, a great question because it's it's sort of at the root of, you know, you know, people want to look at the metrics of sensitivity and specificity of a particular test and say, oh, well, those are those are good values or those are good metrics. Yeah, they're only as good as the foundation on which they're set off of, right, which is the validity that you're talking about. And in the paper, you know, we, we mentioned sort of one of the more common ways to look at validity in special tests and, and other aspects of research is convergent validity. So taking um, sort of a gold standard or a reference standard as it's uh, perpetuated. So in this case, imaging studies, MRIs, CT scans, radiographs, more often MRIs than anything else, and then comparing that to the results of a particular special test. So for instance, you know, if you took an individual who had shoulder pain and you thought it was a rotator cuff tear and you did a special test that um, you thought was good for detecting a rotator cuff tear, and it was a most of these are pain provocation tests, right? Meaning that a positive test is pain. So, um, or weakness for certain rotator cuff tears, right? So if you, if you do one and it, and it causes pain and you say, okay, that's the test we're looking at. And the gold standard is an MRI or maybe 
arthroscopic sort of visualization visualization on surgery, you go in there and you say, oh, look, that rotator cuff is torn. They had pain with this test. So then that's, you know, a tick in that box for this particular one being, you know, I, I want to say that's a, that's a positive test, right? It's not a false positive. It's not a false negative. It's a, it's a true positive if you're using that reference standard in that way. However, we know through study after study after study that rotator cuff tears, MRI showing um, labral tears and, and rotator cuff tears and subacromial impingement, all that visualized on MRI, we see in asymptomatic individuals. So, you know, if, if we're looking at that as a gold standard, we're pointing to the structure as being what's causing the pain when in fact those abnormalities are seen on so many individuals without pain. Um, and so that's just one thing, you know, in those different um, early segues there with the convergent validity and then the reference standards, all the glitters is not gold um, within that paper, kind of shining light on some of the fundamental flaws um, in using those as gold reference standards. And, and to use Jeremy's words, you know, they're, they're not even precious metals um, at this point, based on where we're currently at um, in our understanding of the evidence uh, with what we have available now. So there's a big assumption then that we were making when we are looking at these studies and you cited one in terms of uh, creating base rates for asymptomatics, imaging pathology, quote unquote pathology in asymptomatic shoulders and the incidence of, of several different pathologies was no different than the shoulder than the side that was experiencing pain. We make an assumption clinically that those pathologies have a one-to-one -one ratio with the symptoms. So in that world, if this was an alternate universe and it was that world where these pathologies equaled the degree of pain to which the patient feels, perhaps now the validity that we're putting on those tests has more merit because of that assumption holds true. But it sounds like with what you're saying, because that assumption doesn't hold true, and we see similar base rates in symptomatic, asymptomatic with the same types of pathology, it's what are we testing exactly? Right, no, exactly, what are we testing? And, and I think what we're, what we're heavily relying on is that you know, there's one source of pain and that's a structural abnormality. When in fact, we know that there are so many other sources of pain. Pain is not just a simple nociceptive component that we experience. There are so many other things that are wrapped up in an individual's experience of pain that it's not just a nociceptive, oh, I'm going to compress the bursa and the bursa is inflamed and it causes pain. There's much more to it than that. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it, we're not a we're not a car and our check engine light goes on and we need to have a, a part replaced and that part's why the car isn't going. Um, we're much more complex than that. And, and I think that's you know, something we all know and understand, but we need to go back and, and look at what maybe that initial thought process way back when, when that was kind of coming about, what that's done to us in our current clinical practice now with some of our, our thinking, right? And I think special tests for the shoulder is a perfect example of that. It's been a mechanical based problem for what we've thought for years and years and years that if it's if if there's a tear and they have pain with this then it must be that tear that's causing pain so not only do we have mri findings that kind of refute that but we also have placebo surgeries where they go in and do they do arthros 
just the arthroscopy, not the actual procedure, and compare it to individuals who have the actual procedure done, and there's no change in pain, range of motion, or function afterwards. So if you're not changing the structure, um, and yet the results are the same, then there's something more than the structural components that are causing the pain and or dysfunction symptoms that the, the individual is experiencing. So, so we, we have this assumption that pain and pathology are one-to-one. There's this equal relationship, which is that there's a lot of evidence to refute that. So that's, that's kind of on the table. There's also the assumption that these, these tests can isolate the specific structure that we think they can isolate. That's another assumption that's layered on that you address directly in the paper. So you can talk, can you talk a little bit about that? This assumption that these special tests are actually testing the specific tissues that we are taught that they test. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, another piece that kind of unravels this fabric that, that has been woven sort of over, um, over the years. And, 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 you know, I don't want to discredit the work that, that folks have done in the past because, you know, that's, that's where we stand on the foundation right now to do what we're doing. So they're only doing, you know, what at the time was, was what was right and what they thought to be true. And the same thing that what we're doing now, and maybe 10 years from now, somebody refutes my viewpoint on another viewpoint and, and based on what we, we currently know at that situation and point in time. Um, but yeah, I think it's um, a bit of a fool's errand to to try and think that we can isolate the structure in a shoulder that's causing pain when when first we've already talked about the fact that, you know, the pain may not be coming from a structural source, right? There may be other factors and in influencing um, an individual's pain experience aside from a particular anatomical structure. And then you look at, you know, study after study that, that's been done looking at activation of certain muscle groups, you know, when we talk about trying to bias uh, supraspinatus uh, versus, you know, all the other uh, rotator cuff tendons or shoulder musculature that could be involved or are involved with particular movements, um, and that somehow that pain with, you know, full end range um, flexion is, is, is somehow, you know, isolating a particular thing or with an empty can or, a, a, you know, a full can, you know, it, it's, I think it's, it's already been studied well enough that there isn't a particular muscle that we're isolating. Even if we could isolate that particular muscle, it goes back to our earlier conversation that even if there's a tear there and we can isolate that muscle, who's to say that that's actually the source of pain? Um, you know, we go on to talk about, you know, the, the number of bursts in the shoulder and the nociceptive properties of the bursts and how just having some inflammation in that shoulder can cause pain with all kinds of different movements um, within the shoulder that may not be indicative of any kind of tear or that that might be the source of pain. Do you see value in these tests being just a concordant sign, you know, and an, uh, an asterisk symbol to say, okay, well, these tests at least provide me a mental model for various positions. Cause if you run through some of the common algorithms of special testing for the shoulder, you're going to end up having put the shoulder in lots of different positions so from a clinician standpoint, he just wants a little bit of order with what they're doing. Do you see any value if we're not putting a label to it, but just saying, well, I know the position of an empty can, that was painful. I can use that as a concordant sign. 
and, and potentially an outcome, you know, as we go like a test, retest, something like that. Yeah, I can appreciate that. You know, you're looking for a concordance sign there. Um, but, but I would say that probably earlier in your exam than what you're going to, so if you look at, you know, the utilization of sensitivity versus specificity and when to perform these special tests, many of these special tests that we're talking about, you know, are best suited at the end of an examination to sort of, you know, at least as they're touted, right, to sort of rule in something versus rule out something early on. So by that time in my exam, I should have already had a conversation with the patient to to understand why they're there to see me. And, and I got to imagine that the concordant sign is going to be, well, I'm having trouble putting, you know, my hand behind my back to tuck my shirt in, or I'm having difficulty fastening my bra, or I have pain when I'm reaching up to the top of the cabinet. That That's your asterisk sign, right? That's That's what's specific to that patient. I don't want to sort of, I think you can look at those and say, you know, I know the position of this, I know, but I'm more interested in the function and why that, that patient's there to see me. Right. And, and so I think your concordant sign can be something that they're already telling you um, earlier on in the examination. That's all I need to know is that your shoulder hurts when you do X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, I don't need to sort of, taking into consider some other motions that they haven't even brought to my attention for no other reason than the fact that they've previously been utilized um, in, in the form of a special test, if that makes sense. Well, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I'm, as we're going through this conversation, I'm, I'm giving special thought to the circumstances of students or new grads, you know, and it's my inherent bias just because coming out of school and starting to become more acquainted with research that started to cast some doubt on whether the narratives that we were supplied in school were in fact true or whether they were outdated or not. That leads to a bit of a, you know, almost a bit of an existential crisis in terms of what do we really know? Can we really help this person? And the thing that I keep coming back to um, more and more solidly as I practice, as well as, as I, as I have more conversations with other students and clinicians is what you said there and the importance of taking a really good subjective history and connecting with that person well enough to understand why they walked through the door. Um, you know, what, what issues they're having, you know, maybe in terms of the mechanics, but also what that means for their daily life and, and how that's affecting them and, you know, to bridge their current situation to where they ultimately want to be. And I think that if you do a good enough job largely speaking, you should have a, a pretty good understanding of, um, you know, I guess maybe the bare bones movements or, or things that you want to test out during the objective exam, but you probably, pro it probably drastically reduces the need to go through, run through the list of special tests. Now, I remember being on my first placement and doing a bunch of tests and my instructor asked, why'd you do all those? My answer was, I don't know just because I thought that's what I had to do. Um, but it seems like as expertise increases, you can probably pare that down. Uh, I think you bring up a really good point. And that is, you know, if I'm honest, uh, if I were to examine an individual right now um, who came to me with shoulder pain, I would spend nearly my entire examination or, or a very good portion of it with a subjective exam. It would be very little objective, um, you know, because I want to, uh, you know, not only do I want to build rapport and build a relationship, but I want to understand where they're coming from. I want to listen. I want to, you know, I think early on as a novice clinician, 
I sort of had this checklist that I wanted to go through. I wanted to do my exam. I wanted to find the problem and I wanted to show them how smart I was and come up with a solution and fix it. When in fact, if I just shut my mouth and listen to them, they will guide me to where I need to go with a few questions here and there. Um, and then maybe a little bit of objective measures. And then we, we formulate a plan based off of shared decision-making um, conversation that, that, that we have at that point in time. But in large part, um, I, I certainly value the subjective examination much more than, than the objective uh, with my, my patients who come to see me with, with pain. But that requires talking and listening, and those are hard. It's 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 very challenging, yeah, and and I think you know, I think there is that sort of detective mentality as as a novice clinician or, or even as a seasoned clinician. Sometimes we want to kind of get to the root of the problem, and, and we think we know how to do that best, when in fact it's it's probably the patient who knows how to lead us best to their problems and um, and what's ailing them. Absolutely. I was about to say I used to as a young clinician I used to think everybody that came in the door is a puzzle, and right. that. You know, I would go through special tests and do my objective exam, and I'm moving the puzzle pieces around. Now, I still look at everybody as a puzzle. They all are, right? But asking the right questions, staying in the right right questions and kind of digging in there, they move the pieces around and put that puzzle together for me. And it's it's so difficult. I know that always sounds like so kumbaya. I'm like, oh, yeah. But they, they know their body really, really well. And you mentioned before the asterisk is like, oh yeah, reaching up and grabbing a plate is painful. Okay, cool. That just told me a lot of things. A, it's valuable for you to reach up and grab a plate. I mean, we all have to eat, me more than most people. But it also gave me an objective piece of information to say, okay, that movement hurts. What can we do with that? Paul, you said something earlier that was, Interesting. He said, if I gather enough information, then I should be directed to which test that I would need to do. And I, I model that in my head as we, in, we formulate some type of, of prior probability and whatever test we use should provide a significant prior, posterior probability for or against a certain diagno diagnosis or treatment strategy. And some people don't really think of the subjective as, as providing some of that prior probability, but it absolutely does. When you talk about mechanism, you talk about history, their age, their activity level, their asterisk sign that they show you, like you mentioned, yeah, it hurts when I do this and they do the thing, um, or it hurts during a certain activity that you know what positions are involved and all of those things are formulating your, your prior probability to a plan or at least laying out some treatment options. And then would doing these tests add more valuable information or would it just be just another thing that you do because you, you think you have to tick that box, but it wouldn't actually change anything. And I think that's the roadblock that we're getting hung up on as clinicians is a lot of these rotator cuff related shoulder pain, that's an umbrella diagnosis that can encompass a lot of things that don't necessarily alter the way that, the way that we manage in the sense of, um, you know, in, in medical diagnosis land, if it's a specific physiological disease or something like that. Can, 
Can you speak on a little bit about the tests and coupled with a diagnosis that, because I think those things go hand in hand. Do, di do the diagnoses matter with what we're trying to test? Yeah. And so I, I guess this is an inevitable question, right? So if I don't do a special test, how do I know what's going on with the patient? Well, golly, I would hope that 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 would be the last thing you would need to know what's going on with the patient, right? Um, so I, I think oftentimes what, and this is where I, I think if I really get down to the sort of the sand in my pants, this is, this is it with these special tests. And that is that, you know, novice clinicians can be, whether, whether the intention behind how it's taught is this or not, they can go through their subjective and objective tests and measures for an individual and have a really good understanding of what's going on with this individual and how to treat them. And they will let the positive or negative result of one or more special tests change their mind. A couple seconds of a particular test versus 30 to 40 minutes of a valuable conversation, some tests and measures, not special tests, but you know other objective measures. And then they will begin to second guess themselves if, if, if they don't have pain when they do, well, I think it's, I think it's this that's probably going on, but oh my gosh, I did this special test and it doesn't tell me it's positive. Well, holy smokes, I've, I've seen exam notes where they've done special tests from eight different diagnoses and they're all positive because their shoulder hurts, right? So does, does a positive or negative test from a fundamentally flawed test change your clinical decision-making? It shouldn't. And if it did, then all I need is a diagnosis on a piece of paper and then treat the patient. No, it doesn't work like that. So, you know, I, I almost intentionally sometimes with my students create an atmosphere where we're going through cases and they're hungry for a diagnosis. What is this diagnosis so that I know how to treat them? And so I'll get a sense of that. And before we start the next case, I say, you guys, you guys want a diagnosis? When we're doing this, you want something to give you a definitive diagnosis? And everybody, somebody will say yes. And I'll say, okay, your diagnosis is X, Y, and Z. Tell me how you're going to treat this patient. Well, I need to do a subjective exam. I need to find out this. Exactly. You can't just do it. On, so why does it matter if you have the diagnosis at the beginning or the end? It's the stuff in the middle that really matters and guides your clinical thought process. And in the end, your treatment, not, not a diagnosis. These diagnoses we're throwing on here are, are no different than the tests we're talking about, right? You know, rotator cuff tear, impingement, those things that were once thought to be, you know, the source of, of someone's pain, we're finding out that people have those things and have no pain. So how can that be a diagnosis that then we base our treatment strategy off of? Um, and so I, I think we're better off, you know, building a treatment strategy based on what we have that we spend the most time on. Just to jump in, Paula, I couldn't agree more with everything that you just said there. Let me toss this to you because this next question has been something that I think I've got a better handle on now than I did in previous years, but it was a pretty big struggle. So it's one thing for us as clinicians to, to want or hunger for that diagnosis, just to tick that box and kind of figure out what to do. How do you deal with patients who might come in to see you and want the diagnosis themselves? So they have, they have the thing, they put a name to it and 
who, I don't know, let's just assume that we know what the outcome would be. If we don't give them that name, they might walk out the door thinking, well, I don't, I still don't know what's going on and neither does he, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a great question because that's something that gets raised with this topic quite frequently among clinicians is that, you know, are we doing our patients a disservice or do they undervalue our abilities or capabilities if we're not able to give them an answer to the question they came in with in the first place, right? Is that kind of what you're getting at there? Um, And so, yeah, I think that becomes challenging, but I think it's an opportunity for us to begin to discuss um, these things with patients in a little bit different light, right? Um, And so I think we need to sometimes, and and y'all with your clinical experience will, will, will get this right off the bat, for different patients, we need to do education differently for a number of different reasons. Um, but sometimes it's based on what they've been taught previously or what they've been told previously, either from another healthcare provider or from a family member or a friend who's had a similar um, sort of ache or pain or that sort of thing. And so we, we need to kind of, you know, I think be cautious on how we, you know, how we go about educating the patient. And so I'll flip it kind of the other way. So let's say um, a patient goes to see an orthopedic surgeon has shoulder pain and they go to um, get an MRI and they come back and the, the results of the MRI is that there's a, there's a rotator cuff tear, right? And let's say the orthopedic surgeon says, you know, you've got a rotator cuff tear. It's probably going to need surgery. We're going to give PT a try and see if that helps you, Right. So now what that conversation has done is that that's told the individual that they have a rotator cuff tear, that the tear is the source of their pain and dysfunction, and that PT may work, right? Maybe. There's a chance. So they come to PT, and, and I'm not saying this is every patient. They'll come to PT, and, and I've had walking back to the exam room before even doing the exam, having a patient say, I'm here because I have a rotator cuff tear. What's PT going to do to fix that? Well, PT is not going to do anything to fix your rotator cuff tear, but we don't know that it's the tear that's causing your pain. Why? Because we've got 123 individuals from that Borelli study who had MRIs on their symptomatic and asymptomatic shoulder, and there was no significant difference in in those findings from symptomatic versus asymptomatic, study after study after study after study. But if we perseverate on that tear, that pathology as being the reason for their pain, you know... I, th- I think it sets the individual up. I don't want to say for failure, but the conversation, the narrative is completely different. If they go to a, an orthopedic surgeon and say, you know what, your shoulder hurts, let's get an MRI. They come back and say, yep, you've got a rotator cuff tear, but you know what? I have folks who do great with rotator cuff tears after physical therapy. They never need surgery because oftentimes, you know, they recover just fine. Let's go ahead and, and, and have some physical therapy. Those two narratives and how that is set up for physical therapists, and it's not just, you know, I don't want to say just orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists can can live in that narrative too, right? From a direct access point of view and from an exam finding point of view and MRIs and radiographs, we can perseverate on that. So I think it, it needs to go away from, you know, findings on imaging and particular structures and more on, hey, you know what, we know your shoulder is... Um, irritated at this point, you're having pain with X, Y, and Z. There are a number of reasons you might be having pain in your shoulder. And so here, based on what you've given me, here's why I think your shoulder might be in pain right now. And here's what we're going to do to help mitigate that. Or 
better yet, have that sort of that shared decision-making conversation with them. You know, here's, here's, here's an option. No treatment is an option. Here's an option. Physical therapy is an option. And here's the evidence that sort of supports or denies physical therapy for being helpful where you're at now. Surgery is an option. Here's the evidence to support, you know, refute that for what's going on with you right now. And let them make the decision about their care, right? Um, and so I know that's a little bit of a, of a new concept that's being put out there for some folks. Um, but yeah, I, I think we can still give them something to go home with. I know that's a long-winded way to answer that question. I think we can still give them something to go home with and feel good about without putting the fault on a particular structure or diagnosis that we may not know, in fact, whether that's the source of pain. I think that was a fantastic answer. And I think this is a prime example of why I find conversations with people like yourself who are involved in the research so helpful because... I mean, maybe I don't think I'm alone in this, but if any of you guys can chime in if you think differently. I think for practicing clinicians um, who are you know, on the front lines, as it were, working face-to-face with, with people who are trying to, to practice better and, and who recognize maybe some of the shortcomings or the gaps in our knowledge that we have in the research right now and want to still provide good quality care, want to still connect with the people in front of us, make sure that they feel cared for and heard and understood, but also don't want to default to the sort of the sexy, catchy sound bites that, you know, are useful from a, like a sales perspective, even in terms of clinical care, but aren't necessarily accurate. It can be tough to know how to go, but I continue to think that we can have confidence even with that uncertainty and having a a good, or at least a working grasp of what the research tells us, even on this concept, might allow us to say to the patient at the end of the, the exam, all right, so here's what, what you've told me. Here's what you found on the, the assessment. Here's what I think's going on. I think we've got some sensitive sensitivity in the shoulder. Um, I've had people kind of press me for a diagnosis. And I've said something that you said a few minutes ago, which is like, we can call it this. Um, the reality is that whether we call it this or we call it just anterior shoulder sensitivity or pain, we're treating it about the same anyway. You know, and here's how I want to take you from where you are now to where you want to be, where you can put that plate in the shelf or you can play with your kids. And we've got good research to show. And we've got a really good chance of doing that, especially if we work together to put together a plan that makes sense to you. You know, we roll with the punches. If things don't pan out, there are ways that we can work around it. Um, I find that being able to acknowledge the fact that it's not all neat and tidy, we can't just tick the box and say, yep, you've got this thing and that's that's all there is to it, but be able to do it confidently that still holds on to that person's trust and lets them know that you've got their interest, their best interest at heart and that you'll work with them along the path. Uh, I think that's that's comforting, um, especially for people who might be, whose heads might be spinning a little bit thinking about how they're going to take this knowledge and adapt their practice. I think that's great. You probably, or not probably, you said it better than I did. So, you know, Quinn, when you're you know, putting this together, you make sure to use those words and not mine because he did a lot less time and it sounded a lot better than, than what I say. <laughs> Jared is, an, is a uh, man of words and eloquent, eloquent wordsmith. Words. A wordsmith, I'm, a jazzy I'm, wordsmith. I'm seeing that right now. Yeah, no, that's, that's <laughs> phenomenal. No, I, I would agree. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's great. 
Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Consider this a little brain break from our amazing conversation with Dr. Paul Salam on all things shoulder examination. Speaking of shoulder examination, I have just finished my clinical trial on a very special shoulder test called the Mighty Quinn Shoulder Test. Uh, we just currently found that the sensitivity is 100, the specificity is 100, the positive likelihood ratio is 97, the negative likelihood ratio is 0. 0.000000001. Uh, we will be publishing these findings soon, but you can learn more about the Mighty Quinn special shoulder test by signing up for my course. My, okay, uh, just kidding. Don't forget, that was all bullshit. Uh, don't forget to be on the lookout for upcoming Clinical Athlete Journal Clubs. This is not bullshit, though. This is real. Our journal clubs are always free uh, for anybody to attend and a great opportunity to practice your research, reading, brain gains. So you can follow us on Clinical Athlete social medias and head on over to the website, clinicalathlete.com, and become a free community member as well. And that way, you're pretty much guaranteed to stay up to date on all the things that we're doing in the realms of athlete health and performance. And now, back to the show. We've talked about this on the, on the show numerous times, but this concept of informed consent goes far beyond them just signing a piece of paper before the appointment, which, which blows my mind in, in regards to informed consent because they're like in, consenting to nothing. They're just signing on a piece of paper that they haven't read, but no informed consent is this process that you laid out based on the exam, based on what we've talked about, here are our options. And for the students and clinicians that feel pressured to find a diagnosis or feel pressured to quote unquote fix the person, especially if that person has kind of voiced that, how are you gonna fix me? I feel like that process takes some of the pressure off of the clinician. We are using our knowledge our current understanding of the evidence, we're almost a messenger in this case. Based on the findings and based on my interpretation of the evidence, here are our options. This is not, you know, my genius at work here. This is us having a conversation about what we can do together. And I, I feel like that's extremely powerful. And, um, and, and you laid it out there beautifully. And, and I can only assume, you know, that's what you're, you're trying to get to the students that you're working with at UINDY, which I wanted to ask, by the way, have you gotten any, I want to talk about some of the pushback you get on this. Cause anytime a paper, you know, has a headline like this and you're, and you're kind of nudging the status quo, you're going to get some pushback. You're probably going to get some misinterpretations. You're probably going to get some straw mans. No, I didn't actually say that. If you read the paper, et cetera. Um, what, what were, what are some of those things maybe misconceptions that you want to address that you've heard up to this point. Yeah. Um, this is your, this is your opportunity to, to set it straight. Well, no, I think this is, this is where I just have to choose my words carefully. It's more like it. Um, so yeah, no, no, I, I would say at least my understanding is this has been received um, fairly well. Um, but you're right. There's, there's a lot of folks too, who, who would look at things um, and kind of, you know, ask questions like, all right, so, you know, aren't you interested in your students um, doing well on, on the board exam, right? These questions are still on the board exam. How, how in the world can you not 
you know, can you, in this paper, we talk about, you know, advocating for programs to no longer teach these special tests because it just perpetuates, how can I stand up there and tell you, you know, here are some special tests. I don't think they're valuable. You shouldn't do them. I don't do them, but I'm going to show you them anyhow. It's like teaching my kids not to smoke by putting a cigarette in their mouth and lighting it. It doesn't really make much sense, right? Um, and so I think my answer to that question is, you know, and we even contacted the the board of examiners as we were writing this and said, hey, you know, we're writing this, you know, maybe this would be a nice time to kind of put evidence into practice. And, you know, there's tons of evidence out there that says, you know, X, Y, and Z. We had a nice dialogue, ended up, you know, they've got their processes and procedures, which I completely understand. Um, but it's a, it's a computer-based exam. Uh, for a hands-on profession, right? Um, and so as much as you want to get into that clinical thought process, you know, I don't know how I choose which of the 70 plus special tests in the shoulder to teach my students without taking up all my time allotted to do so. Um, but if you know the name of a special test and what it's meant to test, then you'll probably be answered, you're able to answer, you know, basic questions about that, right? So I'm not too concerned about that. And if I'm if I'm really honest with you, I, I yeah I understand that my students need to pass a board exam in order to practice, but I'm not teaching them to pass a computer based test for a hands on profession. I'm teaching them to be good clinicians, develop a clinical and critical thought process that you know serves them well five, ten, fifteen years from now as the evidence changes. They can be good consumers of that and adjust their clinical thought process and their clinical decision making in light of new evidence. Um, so I think that's one thing I got, you know, about, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you do this if you don't teach them that? And, you know, then we already talked a little bit about how, um, how do you come to a diagnosis, you know, and then know how to treat somebody if you don't have a special test to positive diagnosis. Um, I think about some of the other feedback I got, Oh, uh, you know, uh, thinking about how this, you know, puts, puts sort of a wedge potentially between, clinicians who will maybe receive students going out into the clinic who, you know, maybe have this notion that isn't the same as, you know, a clinician out there as a, as a CI or something might be. Um, and I think, you know, you, you teach your students to have a, a respect for that, to learn from everybody and not, um, you know, try and push their own agenda that they don't quite know yet um, because, you know, they haven't been out there they're practicing and, and to, to take in what you can and, and learn from folks. So, um, you know, I think the biggest pushback has probably been about, you know, the board exam prep, um, at least partly on, on my end, I'm sure there's tons of other um, sort of pushback and maybe you guys can, can give me some points or, or think about those um, that I'm not currently thinking about right now. Well, I, I've got a few here that I just kind yeah, of please. assume, but I'm yeah, just curious because you're, I mean, you're at the University of Indianapolis now. My, that's my alma mater, uh, physical therapy school, University of Indianapolis. And we learn shoulder special tests as they're taught in every PT program. There was certainly a heavy emphasis on critical thinking within that program. And this was seven years ago. So I love the program. I'm just curious. You mentioned pushback from the board of examiners. What about from within the program? other colleagues, anything, has there been discourse on this? Cause I feel like that's how we move forward as we talk about these things. Yeah. Off the record. Um, yes, <laughs> yeah. substantially. Um, and, um, you know, and I think that comes with anything that seeks to change how we do things or questions current, um, 
practice or current anything. It doesn't matter whether it's in the field of physical therapy or medicine or art or engineering. When we look to better ourselves, if we don't have the mindset of always asking ourselves, is what I'm doing the best way to do things? Can I accept a new and novel way that sort of maybe challenges what I'm used to doing and have the humility to say, okay, you know, maybe, maybe I need to look to change. Maybe I need to look to do things differently. Um, but then there are certainly individuals who, um, who don't have that mindset. Right. Um, and so I, I think it's challenging then at that point to, to accept some of these newer things, or maybe, maybe some people will say, well, there's a, there's a place for that type of thinking and, and idea. Um, but maybe it's not on students. Right. And I say, well, who better? Aren't these the ones going out in the field? Don't we want them prepared to be the voice of change, to move our profession forward? And how do we do that if we, the tools we give them are outdated and unsharpened and not ready for that, you know, that environment? Love it. I, so, okay, so some of the questions we were getting within our community and with discussion points as we were talking about the paper. What about the utility of test clusters? And I'll be specific looking at a Eric Hegedus paper from 2015, for example, where there were a few, there were a couple for rotator cuff tears in those who are age 60 and over, which is an interesting thing to be looking for, degenerative tear in age 60 and over, talk about base rates, but um, there was a, there's a, one more cluster for impingement that it's got a likelihood ratio of 10, which might boost your post-test probability. But the overall question is, what about test clusters? Don't those improve our clinical decision-making when we take these tests and bunch them up? Yeah, so a few things. One, love Eric, good friend of mine. He was my professor along with Chad Cook when I was at Duke. Um, love him to death. And I, I think where he was at writing that paper and, and everything was spot on. Um, right. And so that's taking into consideration that these tests do what we expect them to do, which is kind of what we're saying in this paper is that maybe they're, they're not able to do what we think they're able to do. And so you can use which of these analogies you like. So I'll give you, you know, the sort of the explicit version is, you know, if you take shit and pile more shit on top of it, it's just a bigger pile of shit. Right. So that's what, you know, putting those tests together in a cluster gives you, right? Or you could say, you know, it's like trying to put perfume on a pig and it still smells like a pig. So you try five different perfumes. It still smells like a pig, you know, just by putting more and more of something that isn't fundamentally sound together doesn't make it more fundamentally sound when the base on which it sits on is rubbish. Well, and... And then I'm looking at what we're actually like, what is this test cluster looking at? I'm, I'm specifically looking at the paper. So I know nobody's looking at what I'm looking at right now. So I'm like having no, a right. conversation with myself, but for example, Oh, okay. We can increase post-test probability of a rotator cuff tear, cuff tear with weakness and external rotation, night pain, and the patient being over the age of 65 to which my rebuttal is, well, let's look at base rates in those who are over the age of 65 how common is a rotator cuff tear? Pretty damn common. 
Yeah, if you don't have a rotator cuff tear by the age of 55, 65, you play the lottery, you're lucky, right? I mean, that's, that, that's, that's where you're at. It's a degenerative change. We know fatty infiltrates, devascularization, tendon tearing. That's a, it's a senescent change. It's like our hair getting gray on the inside. It's a natural process when we think about the rotator cuff. And so, again, if you look at those in the results of that cluster, what are you using to determine whether that rotator cuff is torn? You're using imaging or you're using results of arthroscopy during surgery. So we're back to that reference standard that isn't really a good reference standard because it's looking at a, a, a pathological abnormality, a, a physical abnormality that we know isn't always linked to pain, right? Because there's plenty of people with those tears that don't have any pain. And that's average population. That's overhead baseball players. That's, I mean... Yeah. So that segues into another question. Are we specifically talking about a traumatic injury, a traumatic insidious onset of pain versus traumatic acute onset? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's tough. I think if you look at the majority of um, the folks that these tests were built on, built on and the metrics were established on, they're atraumatic, right? They're insidious. They're, 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 they happen over time. So, you know, then someone says, well, what does it matter if, you know, if you're, if your cuff is torn all at once or, or over time, even full, th- even, even full thickness rotator cuff tears greater than 75% have shown, have been shown to, to respond well to non-surgical treatment right there was a study that was done in canada um i think over the course of five years they took individuals with um, full thickness rotator cuff tears and they said all right you know there's this idea that if we don't do something they're only going to get worse right and so they followed these these two groups of people people who had the surgery and people who didn't have the surgery and had you know conservative i think they had a you know maybe a couple of visits of, of physio and then they went out to, to do their own little regimen and at the end of five years there's no difference between the individuals. Now, that's not to say that I don't appreciate short-term outcomes just as much as I do long-term outcomes, right? Because if you guys go out tonight and celebrate this podcast and you wake up tomorrow morning and you have a little bit of a headache and I say, you know what, that headache's going to get better in three weeks. Don't bother taking anything now, or you can take an aspirin now and feel better now. I mean, that's, that's your choice. That's short-term versus long-term relief right or results and so that's where i think it gets back to we think we might know what's best but if we lay out that evidence and what we know with the basic treatment options for these individuals and let them make the decision what i value with my treatment might be different than what you value uh, from your perspective because you have different things that you're interested in getting back at a particular certain amount of time or, or what have you and the paper, you know, the title of the paper is specifically rotator cuff related shoulder pain. But, you know, if if you were pressed on it, would this be a more general conversation for the shoulder in general? Or are we saying, no, 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 actually, some of these tests for the labrum, for global instability have more validity. And we're talking about a specific subset. I think, I think that's a very good point to clarify. And I think, you know, people with hypermobility in the shoulder, some of those um, orthopedic clinical tests 
can be useful. And there was a nice viewpoint led by Eric Hagedis and a few others um, in JOSPT this year that talked about, you know, people with hypermobility and this current state of the evidence and, you know, how the results of those tests weigh into their decision making process with regards to that. And I, I completely agree. I think we need to be careful of what we're talking about here and, and what we refer to when we're talking about rotator cuff related shoulder pain. It is in fact, you know, that stuff like impingement, rotator cuff tears, um, even labral tears. We, we kind of put under that umbrella with regards to that. Um, and, and it's because of the evidence we have currently to support that, or at least this, this, this thinking. And you guys, I mean, you provide a table. So the table in the paper on page three, it's this, this is not just kind of a, let's, you know, we take out this part of your exam that you've been learning or have done clinically for many, many years and don't replace it with anything. No, you, you lay out, what an exam can look like with without those specific elements. The, I mean, and and so, you know, anybody listening and, and look at the paper and look at this table, because what stuck out to me is no, a, a lot of your a lot of our expertise and what we learn is still incredibly valuable and useful and should be used within the exam. And that includes the objective exam, where you're you're assessing their function with various tests and measures. And would you say you know, the argument is with these special tests, if, if we had a solid reference standard and if they were specific to testing something and if that drove our treatment strategies based on the result of the test, we would be all for them. It's just that we're, those tick boxes are not checked. And so it, it, would you agree with that sentiment? No, yeah, I would completely agree with that sentiment. And that's that's basically what you're talking about is is an unstable foundation that our current clinical practice patterns regarding these tests have been built on. Um, and so when you knock down that foundation, th there's no room for these to stand anymore, which is the point, right? The foundation on which we thought was solid for these to be built off of is is not based on our current understanding of the evidence right now and so to maintain that sort of other part that last part seems un un i don't want to say unreasonable maybe foolish um is to think how those other things can be you know we can provide evidence and evidence that, that that's that's not true that's not how it works that's not our understanding right now but yet you still want to utilize the result of all of that to inform your clinical decision-making and your treatment strategy when it's not built on a solid foundation, you know, let's not talk about, you know, well, can we, can we try and, you know, you know, maybe, you know, take something away from, no, let's, let's let that fall down and let's build a house somewhere where it's going to stand, not on an unstable foundation because you're likely to have things fall apart again. So let's go somewhere new and let's, let's rebuild on so a solid foundation and you know, I'll, I'll give Jeremy credit for this table. It was his idea. We're writing this and he said, you know, we're going to need to give these folks, not just all these questions and take something away from, from their current clinical practice. We need to give them uh, a structure to, to, to work on based on current evidence for a shoulder examination. And that's exactly what that table is. So it's anybody who, you know, you talk about missing the, the, 
the meat of a of a paper by reading the abstract. If we were just to read the abstract of this paper, you'd be missing this table. And I think it's so critical for the reasons that you brought up is because this outlines, you know, so many fundamental, wonderful pieces of our clinical exam. All we're saying is something that's no longer supported by the evidence. We, we shouldn't let that be a part of this anymore. We should let these other things be a part of what we do and move forward. So real quick, if I could, because um, there's, there's some people that are going to be listening and they don't have the table in front of them. And the one rebuttal oh, yeah. that I always hear on the Facebooks is, well, what the hell are we supposed to do? Are you supposed to talk people to death when they come in? So we, we understand we want to push the, you know, the foundation's not there. We want to go ahead and like wipe, wipe that slate clean. But with how you teach your students and taking this table into account, what's the practical takeaway here? How, would, how do you teach your students to go through this process and especially take that and, and put it into their evaluations from a practical sense? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, what, so basically what does a shorter exam look like? Is that, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as, as you mentioned, this table is now outlined in, in front of folks as they're listening. Um, that would be some cool technology. Maybe you guys could work on that. Um, I'm kidding, of course, but um, you know, without reading this table verbatim, I think what we would hope to have this evaluation process look like, and again, it's going to be different for every individual, every clinician, and so forth, but it's it's kind of this this sort of this funnel uh, approach, right? So you start with kind of a big, broad idea of maybe some things that might be, you know, going on with this individual. You let them guide the narrative. Um, before you start with that, though, you know, you're, you're ruling out things. You're ruling out sinister pathologies that may not be musculoskeletal related, right? Um, and so you're, you're kind of ruling out red flags, things like that, making sure that what you're in fact dealing with is something musculoskeletal related. And then from there, you know, you would, you would sort of look both ways before crossing the street that leads to shoulder work. So, you know, you look one way and you rule out those sinister pathologies, make sure it's musculoskeletal related. You look the other way and you look for competing joints, you know, like the cervical spine wants to masquerade as shoulder pain all the time, right? So am I dealing with something that looks like shoulder pain but is actually coming from another source? Or, you know, I need to feel comfortable knowing how much that shoulder might be contributing or another joint might be contributing before I dive too deep into it. So, you know, I'm starting out broad and then I'm kind of working my way in. And then, you know, some of that you glean from the subjective, but then I'm going to continue my subjective exam to find out more and more information with regards to that. Um, and then once you do that to get to those folks who are, you know, saying, you know, what do we do? Talk to the, the patient to death. No, we don't. But, but I think there is extreme value in spending a good bit of time with that. And then you can move them through, you know, what you might, I don't know what you might consider a normal sort of assessment, right? You would look at active range of motion. You would look at passive range of motion. You would see, you know, how, uh, moving in a particular joint feels to them. You might look at their ability to perform different things in different positions, right? So, you know, maybe they can't reach up here, but if you change the angle a little bit and they reach up here and, and they can do things a little bit better without so much pain, then maybe that helps me to find a starting point for some of their interventions. Um, finding out what they can do, just as important as what they can't do, right? Um, and, you know, the idea of, of looking at strength, maybe, but how we do that, right? How we look at strength. Um, and function and, and all that business and then coming down and putting it all together and developing a, a treatment plan. I mean, that's kind of a, 
a rough, a very rough sort of synopsis of what I would, what I would put out there for uh, a clinical exam. And then, you know, obviously this, the shared decision-making conversation at the end of that. Yeah. But, but I, mean, I would encourage you, I, I have not, I have not done justice to this table. Um, that again, I, I give uh, Jeremy Lewis the majority of the credit for that, if not all, um, because I, I think that that's what guides my clinical practice. And, and you know, here's the thing I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm leading all of them, but, but golly, you know, I had incredible mentors uh, like Jeremy and Eric and Chad, and so many people that have have taught me. Um, and, and I'm not out here promoting my own thing. I'm, I'm just, you know, yeah, I, I don't even know. I, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm, I'm out here promoting my own thing, and this is like the greatest thing since sliced bread. But I think this is this is what people a lot smarter than me have found to be successful in helping their patients. Uh, with regards to shoulder uh, condition. Well, what it's potentially doing is just trimming away some of the noise as we can, you know, start to to whittle our processes down over time to get to what matters ultimately. And there's just looking at this table, I think you guys have, you created some some broad buckets to dive into, but there's still plenty there to parse out if we wanted to get into the nuance assess, you know, assessing strength even by itself is, well, how, what positions, what does it mean? Do we have normative values? Like all that can be its own conversation. So there's plenty here to talk about and to discuss, to learn about, to be wrong about. Um, I, I feel that taken, if we find a big chunk of this, that's not helpful. We're able to, to take that out and put it in our, you know, out to pasture, so to speak. Um, for the time being, at least, if somehow we learn something new and we have to pull it back in, well, we can do that. But it's a it can it's a good thing, rather than oh, now it just confuses me even more. You know, if we can kind of frame it that way. Um, gosh. Well, I, real quick, I don't want to interrupt you there, Quinn. No, I'm done. I'm done. Like my favorite quote, and before we started talking, I, I told you my favorite quote is what. What actually afforded these tests the title of special? And when you walk through that really practical approach to the evaluation, and the the one thing I want to pull out of there is like, okay, so we take you into flexion, you can't reach up, let's change the arm angle for you and see how that changes. We talk about special tests from a very biomedical framework. So we do a Hawkins-Kennedy test and that tests for impingement. And we do external rotation testing for rotator cuff. And it's special because we're talking about a particular structure. This is kind of a different framework when we look at the way you've laid this stuff out. And we say, okay, well, the special test is going to be based off the person sitting in front of us and their limitations, their psychosocial factors, their actual range of motion restrictions, And in the moment, based off all of the history, all the subjective testing that we've done, all the subjective interviewing that we've done, we will come up with our own strata of special tests based off what they've actually shown up, up, shown us to this point. That to me is the actual, what I would consider special. I think that's great. I think it's, it's, it's us getting away from what we think should be special and making it 
special for the patient based on what you just said, right? Based on how they're presenting to us because, you know, they're the ones in front of us. Jared, do you have any uh, parting thoughts? Nothing other than this is a fantastic conversation and I'm really excited for more people to, to hear it. Uh, not just because I got to riff and flex my wordsmithing abilities, but mm. mostly because I think this is really valuable info. And uh, I think it just speaks to the heart of what we're trying to do with clinical athlete in terms of getting, helping providers serve their clients better, um, you know, at the end of the day. So Paul, thanks so much for coming on, man. This is awesome. Easily one of my favorites. You wordsmithed it up, Jared, but Paul said, sand in my pants, you can't put perfume on a pig and you can't stack shit on top of shit. All three quotes that are absolutely memorable that I need to use more frequently in my own speech. Same here. And I've got no shame passing the crown over to Paul for today. <laughs> phenomenal. I don't know about I was that. Dying over here while he was talking. It was great. I think, and, I think the more yeah. I hear of you guys talking on the podcast and less of me is probably better. I tend to ramble and not be uh, too eloquent in my speaking when I can get all wound up. We might agree. To no, this. no. Yeah. And we get, we're going to get the cool uh, E for explicit on this show. Yeah. <laughs> like, ever, without fail, we get more uh, downloads. So, so edgy. That's, that's a plus. Um, yeah. Paul, this was phenomenal. It's a, an absolute honor for us to be able to speak with individuals like yourself. And uh, thank you. Where can people can learn more about what you're doing, connect with you, all that. Oh man. Yeah. I don't know. I'd say don't, don't connect with me, connect with people smarter than me. Um, that's, that's where I'd be looking. Um, and, and you know, I'm, I'm always happy to, to have conversations with people via email or telephone or whatever, but, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, uh, such a great social media person or anything like that, but you are on Twitter. I am on Twitter at, at Pauly Salam. Um, that's where I'm at on Twitter. And I would say, I would encourage people to um, just Google Paul's name and Google his name and Google Scholar. And then f if you just click the blue follow button, you will get a notification every time that his name is on a paper and you can do the same thing in ResearchGate. And that's how we, we like to stay up to date on our, on our favorite authors. So, um, and then we mentioned Chad Cook and Eric uh, Hegedus and, and uh, Jeremy Lewis and just phenomenal crew. I think I'm, am I missing one? No, I think this podcast. Yeah. Uh, anybody else we talked about? Uh, Maury Colber. Yeah. Awesome. Um, then you could do the same thing with those, with those individuals as well. But uh, Paul, thanks so much. This was phenomenal. You got it, man. Thanks to you guys. Uh, you brought it to the table and I, I appreciate it. it. Make me look maybe too foolish. I don't know. We'll have a listen, but uh, there you go. Now I appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, something I, I care a lot about and that's helping people, uh, particularly with shoulder pain. Absolutely. Thanks so much. We'd like to thank Dr. Paul Salam for being on the show and all of the brain gains that he laid upon us. You can check out the show notes for ways to follow Paul and also for a link to the paper that we discussed on the show. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg for steering this ship alongside me 
and thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. And remember, if you want to dive even deeper into the clinical athlete community, you can check out all the clinical athlete forum has to offer, which includes our clinical athlete academy courses, amazing discussions and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students, and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon.